Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. Some people go to medical school to become doctors and some of them go on to become specialists in august hospitals and clinics and they become cardiologists and surgeons and general practitioners. Why, you'd have to ask yourself, would you do that when all you have to do is lie in bed with your toast and jam and a cuppa on Sunday morning and turn on radiotherapy? Listening to our little radio show won't make you a doctor, but it'll make you think you are one. And man, do we have a great show lined up today. Now, if you haven't heard the name Sharon Lewin, then you haven't been listening. Professor Lewin is head of the Doherty Institute and a world-renowned leader in infectious diseases, particularly of the viral kind. It's hard to put into words just how significant a player Sharon is in the world of research. But trust me when I say... We wouldn't be surprised if she gets a call from Stockholm pretty soon. Professor Lewin will be telling us all about the latest in research about uh, the COVID-19 virus and uh, where to from here. Professor Kate Drummond is a surgeon who operates on the organ responsible for making us who we are. Which one do you think that is? Time's up. It's the brain, the seat of our souls, the CEO of our thoughts, the master and mystery of our memories. What an awesome job! Not only a surgeon, but Kate is a highly acclaimed researcher with over 120 papers to her credit. Gee, that's more than I've read. Um, As well as being director of neurosurgery at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and a whole lot of other roles. We'll be chatting with her about the latest in brain tumour research, especially about the possibility of uh, mobile phone usage and the connection between tumours mobile phones. Sandy Jeffs and Margaret Legart are the authors of the new book, Out of the Madhouse. It's the story of Lorundal Psychiatric Hospital, the people, the staff, the red phone, the cafe, the dancers, and it's beautifully told by poet and writer Sandy, along with Margaret, sociologist OT and founder of Sane Australia. But the book isn't only about Lorundal. It extends into asking questions about community care, recovery, and the notion of asylum. We'll be talking with Sandy and uh, Margie first up in the hour. It's going to be a wide-ranging discussion, so stay with us for the next hour of radiotherapy. And let's say hello to Nurse Epi Penny. Are you there, Epi? Yes, sure am. Raring to go. What a humdinger of a show today. We have been looking forward to this show for months. Uh, Dr G-Spot, you there? I am. Lovely to be here, Dr. Mal. I don't know how we're going to fit it all in. we better get cracking. We, we'd better get cracking. Can I just say, I mean, listeners can't see you, but every Sunday morning we have you on Zoom, you are dressed to the nines. It's like you're going out to a party. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, you know, in lockdown, it's important to get dressed up occasionally. I'm even wearing shoes, would you believe? Well, so, yeah. Uh... So you could, be, you could be lying. We don't really know because we can't see below your neck. But anyway, <laughs> welcome, um, Margaret Legart and Sandy Jeffs. Hello. Thanks for having us, Dr. Mal. Look, I, I cannot tell you um, how much I enjoyed the book. Just a few minutes before we went to air, I was uh, – I was. <sighs> I know. I think I had a bit of a fan adoration moment because this book is so beautifully written. Tell us, um, what gave you the idea of writing about La Rundle? Why write about it? 
good question. Um, I've had many admissions there as a patient myself between 1978 and 91. And uh, I was with some friends one day sitting, uh, they're in, in the spa with a glass of wine and, uh, and some bickies, and they said to me, you should write a book about La Rundle. And I thought, oh, I can do that. <laughs> so yeah. I thought, yes, I'm going to write a history of La Rundle. It's going to be the, the definitive history of La Rundle. And then I sort of thought, oh, God, I'm not, I'm not a historian. How am I going to do this? So I thought what I'll do is I'll interview people who were past inmates and past staff and I would collect an oral history of Larundel. And so as I and so I did the first interview in 2011, so it's 10 years ago, um, and I kept doing interviews and doing interviews, uh, th- got people through word of mouth, people I'd known at Larundel, and I just kept gathering interviews. And I had, by the end, I had interviewed about 73 mm. people face-to-face mm. and, and another, another six or seven had sent in their recollections. And I had this absolute mammoth amount of material to work with and I thought, gee, I, I, uh, I, I'm dying here. I can't do this. So I thought I'd better phone a friend. So I, 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 phoned, I phoned Margie Leggett uh, and said, Margie, do you want to be my co-author? Because I thought if I get Margie on board with all her extensive knowledge of the caring movement and, the, um, and her work at the fellowship, she would be a great person to have on board. So I, I, I inveigled Margie into, uh, into being co-author and that's when we sort of got the transcripts done because there's a mountain of transcripts, yeah, yeah. Um, got the transcripts done, and then we sort of got to really writing it in about 2016, I think, and that, that was the beginning. Can I, can I bring Margie in for a second now? I, right at the start of the book, you two had a, um, what's the word, uh, difference of opinion about the title. Now, Margie, can you tell us about that? Well, yes, I can because um, at the time uh, we were thinking about um, – deinstitutionalisation and closing the big hospitals down. We were also trying to change the the terms that we used. Um, We didn't want people to be seen as insane people and mad people. We were changing the terminology to people who had a mental illness. You know, they weren't mad, crazies, loonies, all those awful Mm, words. mm. And it was the same with the psychiatric hospitals, Mm. uh, with the big institutions, the insane asylums. Mm. We were trying to change that to psychiatric hospital. Mm. People were unwell, they had an illness, and they could go to a hospital to be treated. So when Sandy comes to me and she says... um, I'm mad, I'm a loony and I'm not ashamed of this and I'm, a prou- I'm proud to say that um, that's where I've been. I thought, oh, Sandy, mm, I think I know an awful lot of people out there who don't want to be seen as having had a madness, mm. don't want to be seen as loonies. They do want to be seen as somebody who is unwell and mm. needs treatment. So, and you will always find with Sandy that in the end you give in, you know, she's <laughs> always right. I found myself listening to all of her arguments and starting to agree with her. It was really wonderful that she was prepared to come out and say, okay, I've got an illness called schizophrenia and when I have my uh, episodes, I'm mad, I'm a loony. And I think you can feel all the way through the book, can't you, that she eventually wins the, <laughs> wins the arguments? Yes, yes. Look, I've got to say any book that opens with this quote from Dante's Inferno, can I just read this? Because I mean, yes, I, yes, this is the first yes. thing I read and I thought, okay, I'm into this book already. Um, and this is from the Inferno. Was uh, Dante writes, I have been in his brightest shining heaven and seen such things that no man once returned from there has wit or skill to tell about. And I just thought, what a great passage to start off the book with. Um, but it's more than about Lorundle, isn't it, Sandy? It's, 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 it's a, a, 
I, I, I'm struggling to find the words. Not a, it is lovingly told, and it is a homage, um, but it's it's more than just about the building, isn't it? Can you tell us what that? Can you give us a sense of the vibe, the spirit of the book? Yeah. Well, the vibe is that first of all, the voices of the people who were there are front and centre. So it, it's it's their voice, the voice of what I of, of what I call my mad comrades. They're they're in there. The voice the voice of the staff uh, is in there. So I wanted the voices to be really strong in the narrative. But I think that as we were writing the book and as I was gathering these transcripts and reading them and getting the information, I realised there's a huge story to be told. It's a story worthy of a Shakespearean play. It's such an epic story uh, of, of suffering and of... Um, of, of, of just the whole gamut of the human experience. And we see people in at their lowest there and we see people at their highest there. So the book became about not just LaRundle, it became about the human condition, but also it's about LaRundle. And in the end, we ask the questions, what do we gain by losing LaRundle or closing LaRundle? And what do we um, lose by closing LaRundle? So there's, there's, there's loss and gain. And I think what we really, what I think I summarise is that what we really lost was the notion of asylum, that um, that LaRundle with its gardens, the gardens are what people mostly remember about LaRundle, the, the curative gardens, the, the lovely gum trees, the rose bushes, the, the, the shrubs, the lawns that were manicured by the many gardeners who were employed there. And um, people often um, reflect that the new the, the system we have now with, with uh, acute wards in a general hospital, the back of the hospital in the concrete jungle, jungle don't have the curative gardens that LaRundle had. So there was that aspect of LaRundle that it did provide people with time to get better because you weren't there for seven days and then chucked out mad because someone mad and needs your bed. You were there for time. You had time to gather your, to gather your senses and time to form therapeutic relationships with the nurses because that, that were their big time. They were there on two, uh, two, day, two days on, two, day, two days off in a 12-hour shift. So you formed these therapeutic alliances. So it was a place where you had time, space uh, and, and, and the opportunity to, um, to rehabilitate in some, in some way, shape or form. Are things that we don't get now in our, in our psychiatric system. Not that I'm saying LaRundle was all good. It mm, wasn't mm. all good, but it wasn't all bad. It, it had many aspects to it. Some people were, were traumatised by their time at LaRundle and mm. they were politicised by their time at LaRundle. I had a more benign experience, which is perhaps why I'm so kind to LaRundle in the book, because my experience was quite benign. You, you do write, uh, look, I've underlined some of the passages, but you, you wrote um, Time, Space and Nature can all help one recover some sanity after losing it. And it's so true. The idea of nature, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've worked in different hospitals among, in my time and the ones which had beautiful grounds, I'm thinking of Fairfield Hospital, the Infectious Diseases Hospital, mm-hmm. where you could walk outside and there were peacocks and it was incredibly calming, you know. Um, yeah. And it's so true what you write. Oh, Epi. Yeah. So um, my mum was a psychiatrist. And she also worked at um, La Rundle. So uh, she came home with some great stories. I mean, not that she didn't divulge anybody's um, psychiatric illness, but she made it a really positive place where people were getting better. And they did some innovative work there, I think. Um, And uh, so I was just, uh, I read this quote as well. Everyone in La Rundle was really hungry, hungry for love, hungry for support, hungry for honesty. It was a very hungry place. Mm. Could you talk to that one, um, Maggie? Well, I wasn't ever actually in um, La Rundle. Um, I started my career as an occupational therapist at Royal Park Psychiatric Hospital. 
And um, my role there was very much to concentrate on um, um, redeveloping the sort of social skills that many people who have an illness like schizophrenia lose because of their illness. So uh, it was very much trying to develop a a normal um, day-to-day environment for for people. The hungry for love, yes, I think uh, what was really, really um, good for me to remember was that the patients um, really supported each other enormously. And a lot of the activities that we um, did at at, um, at, at Royal Park, I remember I was... um, uh, loved preparing puppets, puppetry shows. And it was very much a team effort with, with the patients. They were all very much involved in it. And this was marvellous for de-emphasising the fact that people were not just their illness, mm. that people um, were people, yes, and they were hungry for love. They were hungry for connection with other people. And that was very much part of um, my day-to-day work at, uh, at Royal Park. And so I think the same was certainly for Larundel. I think Larundel was very, very important because it was one of the very big institutions that was really trying to change what happened in institutions. And, again, the occupational therapy department there was always very full of people doing normal, everyday activities, getting away from this whole idea that you are nothing but an illness. Mm. OTs are some of my favourite people because you're very, very practical. <laughs> I had some managers when I was working yes, in different services and they were OTs <laughs> and they were just so practical. Everything worked. Um, yes. But I, I, I want to speak to that idea of um, Larundel being a place of innovation. And now we've, we're, we've come into the, the world of recovery-focused or patient-focused practice which doesn't focus so much on the symptoms. It focuses much more on the human being. And, and as you write in the book, um, Sandy and Margaret, Larundel was very much about that. Can you, can, you, can you kind of speak to that, Sandy, a bit about the idea of Larundel and it, it being at the forefront of innovation? Yes, I talk about Larundel in the 1970s and early 80s, particularly being a place of innovation and optimism. Yeah. Um, and, and at Larundel, we had from the late 60s into the, to about 1975 or six a, a thing called Faulkner House, which was a therapeutic community. And in that, and it was run by Daniel Carnes, who was a, the psychiatrist in charge, who was a, a very maverick psychiatrist who played cello for the for the patients. He was, <laughs> really? he was a wow. multi, multi, multifaceted man, a very clever man. And and he um and, and Faulkner House was a place where mainly people with depression and borderline personality disorder would go. They didn't have people with psychosis there, which is interesting. Um, and people were there, they weren't medicated. So it was about group intensive group therapy sessions. Uh, one-on-one group, one-on-one therapy. Um, the whole thing revolved around therapy and group therapy. Uh, and it was a very, 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 um, uh, it was seen by some in the hospital as being too maverick and too uh, away, too too left of centre. It was seen by others as a place of absolute healing and um, where, the, where the human being in fullness was celebrated. And that uh, for some people, one woman said she went into, into Faulkner House and moth and, and, and came out a butterfly. It was such a lovely image. Uh, for her, it was a transformative. So, yeah. so Faulkner House was really um, very, very big and important. It was seen as a bit of an, an elitist ward mm. uh, by, by some of the hospitals who didn't like it. Mm. Um, people were dying dying to get there. People wanted to be in Faulkner House. People wanted to work in Faulkner House because it was so cutting edge. Uh, we also had um, that, uh, Neil Hucker was running, um, um, what do you call it, um, 
psychodrama. He was running mm-hmm. psychodrama sessions at Larundel. Uh, you had you so you had a lot of innovation happening. A lot of people wanted to work at Larundel. It was well known throughout Australia mm-hmm. as a place where innovative things were happening in terms of psychiatric care. So people were wanting to work there. People wanted to be patients there. And it was a in and the seventies were really a, a big time. But I have to ask. I have to say though, I was there in the nineteen seventies. And I wasn't aware of it being a place of innovation and optimism because as a patient, you weren't. I think the, the staff had a bigger, more awareness of that than the patients did. There was also the um, pantomimes that were, that were being performed there by the staff. In the uh, late 70s, there were two the, pantomimes. The staff. Yeah, the staff performed pantomimes. Mm. There, there was a, a hall in one of the wards. It, it, the South, South um, 4 or 5 had a, had a hall, mm. uh, a stage, and um, and Len Blair, who was the chaplain, he wrote the, um, the, the libretto for the for the, the um, wow. pantomimes. One was called Cinderella and the Hospital Ball and the other was called <laughs> Alice and the other was called Alice in Larundel Land, which is the title of my poem. Um, and Len Blair wrote the libretto, and and and, uh, and Tony Owen, a psychiatrist there, played piano beautifully. He did the music for the pantomime, and they gave two performances: one in the daytime for patients, and one at nighttime for family and other people. And these, I've got some recordings of these pantomimes, and they are absolutely fantastic. That- there are doctors and nurses singing and dancing on stage. And a really um, daggy way, and these pantomimes were <laughs> were really um, sort of emblematic of Larundel at the time because the staff was so was the camaraderie of the staff was extraordinarily profound at the time. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah. I was just going to say we should bring that back. Definitely, I reckon that the staff should be doing oh, yeah. pantos. Um, yeah, we <laughs> we could speak. And you know, as I said to you uh, in the lead up to the show, we could speak for a long time about your book, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. The book is called "Out of the Madhouse: From Asylums to Caring Community?" Question mark by Sandy Jefferson, Margaret Legger is. It is such a good read. Um, it's it's out by Arcadia Press. It really is such a great read. And um, even if you've just got the most passing of interests in this area, please uh, pick it up and have a read. Thank you so much, Margie and Sandy, for joining us on Thank the you. show today. And um, Thanks, we'll probably catch up with you at some time in the future. Cheers, guys. No Thanks for having us. We are going to play a sponsorship announcement. And then we're going to come back with Professor Kate Drummond. Have a listen to this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You are indeed listening to 3 Triple R. You might be listening at you might be listening to it on 102.7 FM. You might be listening to it as a podcast. You might be streaming it, and you can be doing that from anywhere in the world. I am Dr. Mel Practice. With me are Nurse EpiPen and Dr. G-Spot, who are dressed up for the show. And joining us is Professor Kate Drummond. Welcome, Professor Drummond. Hi, Dr. Mel. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've been trying to get you on for about the last six months. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. You two years. The right. universe has been conspiring against us. Yeah, well, it it's not going to be doing your reputation any good coming onto our show. Just let me tell you that. You know, you know, people are going to say, "Oh, you went onto that show, really? Oh, goodness!" I'm okay? honoured. Honoured. <laughs> now, um, you, you're a neurosurgeon, so just tell us briefly before. I know EpiPen's got heaps of questions to ask you, and G Spot as well, heaps of questions. But just tell us, how did you get into neurosurgery, brain surgery? Uh, well, I, I actually went into medicine to be an obstetrician. 
uh, and then I delivered a baby and I said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I know it is for some people. It's certainly not for me. Uh, but I was quite interested in the gynae surgery. So I thought I'd be a general surgeon. And then as an intern, uh, to get the rotation in general surgery that I wanted at Blacktown Hospital in Sydney, uh, I had to take a rotation in neurosurgery. And, you know, I, I saw my first brain tumour patient and I thought, wow, you know, this person really needs someone to look after them. And I thought, okay, that, that, and that was it. Of course, I didn't tell anybody because, you know, you didn't tell, you weren't like a, 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 a you know, 20-something-year-old girl and say, oh, I'd like to be a brain surgeon in those days. So mm. I, I hid my ambitions for a little while. But, uh, yeah, that, that was it. F fantastic. And 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 where where did you go from there? How did you get what what training did you get into? Uh, well, you, in that time, you had to do a thing called the the surgical part one exam to get into get into surgery. Um, that that was wonderful. That was a wonderful exam. The College of Surgeons gave you negative marking, so you could actually get less than zero for the multiple choice because they'd take marks away for <laughs> wrong answers. Sure. Uh, and the first time I did the surgical exam. They sent me this very helpful letter that told me my percentage chance of ever passing the exam. And that they said I, I had a 1.5% chance of ever passing the exam. So it took me four goes to get that. But then once I was in training, I was, you know, I trained uh, two years at Westmead in Sydney, Royal North Shore, and then I came to Melbourne uh, to the Austin and the Children's and then landed up at uh, Royal Melbourne. And I've been there ever since. Wow, that is so amazing. And so, and I hear you do some philanthropy in the sense of going overseas to operate on people. In well, actually, we don't operate. So well, I'm chair of a, an organisation called Pangea Global Health Education. Uh, and we've actually stayed well out of the space of going over to operate because that, that actually brings a lot of problems. It can bring problems of disempowerment. Uh, it can bring, bring, bring problems of... Um, de-skilling the local population and I'm certainly not criticising a lot of organisations that do the operating work well but there's a lot who do it not well. Um, so we we do education so we do innovative uh, healthcare education often to the non-healthcare the non-doctor professionals that provide much of healthcare in Africa. So most of the healthcare in Malawi is delivered by non-doctors who even do the operations and set the bones and do all of that. So, so we take a multidisciplinary team of doctors, nurses, you know, logistics, PR, all that, and uh, and uh, every year to Africa and uh, and run innovative teaching programs, which is so much fun. So, if somebody wanted to donate to that, is there a is there a fund that collects money to help? Absolutely, well? they could go to our website, Pangea, P A N G E A. Global Health Education, GHE, Pangea GHE, at, you know, WW at whatever. Um, and <laughs> if they just search for that, then uh, they can certainly donate online. Do you need any psychiatrists to come over and help you? Uh, look, we've had, we have taken a psychiatrist and, uh, you know, PTSD and mm, uh, suicide mm. prevention in some mm. of these countries is massive, mm. um, particularly if, when people learn that they're HIV positive. Mm. Um, there's a, you know, when we're in Rwanda, of course, there's a lot of trauma. Uh, mm. So we do, and, and end of life care there is hopeless. So mm. taking a psychiatrist who can, um, you know, do some work around end of life care 
um, you know, is 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 great. Uh, so if you want to come along, let me tell you, we, we, we'd love to take a psychiatrist. Oh, good opportunity. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and what's what's new in brain cancer um, research, or is it is it? Where are we going? Are we improving people's life expectancy? And I know that's very dependent on the type of tumour, but maybe could you talk to that? So I think I think there's sort of three aspects to that. I mean, the first aspect is just that people live longer because the, the general care that we give them is better. Mm. You know, there's been a lot of advances in surgery that that mean that you can remove more tumour more safely. We're more aggressive in our surgery um, so, at the, you know, the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy, there's been sort of incremental in advances in that that has, that has um, made modest improvements in life expectancy. Um, there's the area of supportive care, which w- was, was completely, um, you know, really neglected. And as you know, um, you know, having good palliative care actually makes mm-hmm. people live longer. Um, doesn't hasten their death. So, uh, you know, the sort of good supportive and good palliative care is important. I think um, as far as research goes, unfortunately, there's been no major changes in the last 10 years or so. But what has changed is an explosion of clinical trials and new research frontiers. So, you know, you would have heard perhaps of the CAR T cells that are that are changing blood cancers. Um, you know, we... We, uh, we're starting to think about those uh, in brain tumours, immunotherapy, clinical trials for low-grade tumours that were never there. So I think, uh, you know, I think we're, we're kind of just on the cusp, um, really hoping that some of those things will come to fruition. And whereas once we might have one trial to offer a patient with a brain tumour, you know, now we've got a number of trials that we can mm-hmm. offer. And that, I mean, that, that's a huge difference in itself because we know that patients who are on clinical trials live longer even if they're in the placebo arm, because clinical trial medicine is just good medicine. Do you know my, um, and this is truthful, my, my entire experience, not entire, 99% of my experience with neurosurgery is watching Grey's Anatomy and uh, Dr. McDreamy. It's just like that. Is it like that, <laughs> do you reckon? <laughs> no, seriously. Oh, you know. no, uh, uh, no, it's nothing like that. I really wish. I think, um, I think the best medical show uh-huh. for, you know, veracity of, and, and it's still, of course, dramatised, but I don't think you can go past ER. Oh, yeah. ER, oh, yeah. ER was fantastic. I mean, come classic. on, Dr. Dr. Green had to have an awake craniotomy for his brain tumour. I was living in Boston at the time and I'm watching as Dr. Green gets diagnosed with a with an inoperable brain tumour and I'm standing in my living room screaming, no, get a second <laughs> opinion, you need an awake craniotomy. Um, so that was that was a great show. Re- that was the best show. So I, I feel really intelligent because my daughter, my my eighteen year old now daughter, watches it with me. And um, you know, McDreamy is saying, "I'm now going through the middle middle cerebral artery or something." And I say, "Hang on, I know that one. That's the one that attaches to the I don't know carotid or something." And she thinks I'm like really smart because I can I can second guess his uh, his craniotomies. So if you can second guess Dr. McDreamy, you must be smart. Yeah, because we because yeah. we we look similar. <laughs> I live I live with a neuropathologist, retired one, and he comes home with the most fascinating stories of the surgery in very precarious parts of the brain and recovery and mm. he, he's just, yes, he's in it's an incredibly intelligent area of medicine. 
it's it's so um, challenging in looking and diagnosing and testing and working with closely with the surgeons because you've worked very closely at where you can operate and and what kind of prognosis you can give people and yeah I mean it's it's fascinating. Can, can I ask you about about something serious about mobile phones and uh, tumor risk? Is there an association or is there no association? There is no association. Dinkum, really? Yeah, Dinkum. The, 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 the studies that show an association are deeply flawed. Um, so, you know, if we, if we really want to put that to bed, we're going to have to take away the mobile phones of, you know, 500 people and never let them use them. So, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe enrol an entire Amish community uh, and we're going to have to compare them with an age-matched uh, cohort of people uh, monitor their mobile phone use, and if they do that and they show there's a difference, then I will believe it. But the studies are deeply flawed, and I spend most of my day with my phone attached to my ear. Right, because I just just a you know one of the reasons I'm asking is because I think it was in France where the new mobile, the new iPhone, I think had to come out with um, earpieces because of the association. I think I don't know. Sure, but, yeah, but, but the, there's, there's much craziness in the world. True. And now, um, G-Spot, you had a question. That's, I was going to ask Professor Drummond, so we know that mobile phones don't cause brain cancer, which is awesome, but what are some of the things that we know might lead to brain cancer? So our understanding is pretty poor. Um, if you've got uh, a, small, a small number of genetic diseases, um, you're, you're more likely. So some of the diseases where you've lost something called a tumour suppression gene, um, something called Lee-Fraumeni syndrome or some of the neurofibromatoses, you're more likely. Um, the other main thing is uh, ionising radiation. And as I said, we're not talking about your mobile phone, your, your microwave, your clock radio. So um, Hiroshima survivors and in particular children who've had irradiation of their brain for childhood um, um, blood cancers uh, in particular. Uh, and, and we, but we're talking high-dose high, high dose radiation here. Mm. Um, and from that, not much else. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an area, definitely an area of, uh, of uh, intense research as to whether we could identify people at risk. Um, you know, I imagine there's a lot of people out there who would be thinking about brain surgery as a career. Well, if not a lot, but there'd be some. How the, the average operation? How long would that take? Yet, do you reckon? Oh, look, it takes anything—anything anything from half an hour to uh, to ten hours. Remember, neurosurgeons have an incredibly varied practice. Hmm. So um, we do carpal tunnel operations because that's a nerve operation, and that's about half an hour. We call that brain surgery of the wrist. Uh, we do we do spine operations because there's you know nerves in there so brain surgery of the back uh, that might only take an hour or so but then you know a really difficult uh, really difficult brain surgery um, brain surgery of the brain um, may actually may take sort of six to ten hours depending on what you're doing so it's quite the, the, the practice is incredibly varied. What's the longest time you've spent on one operation in theatre? My longest is eighteen hours and I never want to do that again at about. 12, uh, you know, I just, I had to call someone else in and go and sit down and have a cup of coffee and a Mars bar. So you're concentrating uh, on somebody's brain for 18 hours. Yeah, I don't want to ever do that again. What, Thanks very much. What was that for a tumour or for a... It was for a patient who had uh, kidney cancer uh, right. and it had gone to the brain 
uh, and they're notorious for bleeding, 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 bleeding. And it just was so slow going. Get, take a bit, stop the bleeding. Take a bit, stop the bleeding. Take a bit, stop the bleeding. So, yeah. you know, it just, it just took a long, long time. And so where do you think we're going now with uh, technology in terms of neurosurgery? I remember, like, was it 20 years ago or however long ago, stereotactic surgery came in with, you know, imaging and, I don't know, hologram. Do you guys use holograms and, you know, that kind of stuff in theatre? Is it like... Yeah, well, you can. Uh, so, you know, we often operate with a uh, with an operating microscope where, you know, it's a massive microscope that you look down to magnify the operating field. Yeah. You have a heads up, dis- a holographic heads up display in there um, with how, you know, ha- where the tumour margins are and what you'll come to next in, in the layer. Um, Fair income. So it's, you've got, it's, it's like a car heads up display in, on your windscreen. Yeah. So it's got, yeah, yeah. That's impressive. We've got intraoperative MRI where we can actually take the patient in and out of an MRI scanner as we do the surgery to check uh, whether we've got all the tumour. We've got this really cool thing called Glyland that we can, uh, we give the patient this little drink uh, about three hours before the surgery and it colour codes the tumour for it. It glows pink in under blue light. So uh, you just take out the, the glowing pink bit, where, you know, and, and those of you who are old enough, because the whole operating room is in blue light, we call it the blue light disco operation. I, um, I'm in, I am in awe. You are joking. What, so antibodies attached to the... To the no, no, no. The... It, it, get, it gets into the tumour cells and it metabolises into a fluorescent substance. Uh, and so when we put a certain wavelength of light on it, and the brain metabolises, the surrounding brain metabolises so slowly that it doesn't, doesn't take up the drug so it's the it's the highly dividing metabolizing cells that take up the drug and it makes it glow the beautiful bright pink that is amazing is that what every tumor or just some tumors um not all of them but the 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 most malignant ones it works really well wow that is i'm i'm shocked and awed um and i'm having visions of mrs marsh are you old enough to remember that tv that tv ad with the chalk and it gets in oh yes yes look it really does get in (laughs) yeah um (laughs) And what do you reckon, tw- 10 years from now, what are we going to see in brain surgery, the sort of operations? Going to uh, see- well, I, I think uh, operation, robotics is becoming a bit of a thing. Um, not sure, you know, how far that's going to go. Right. Uh, there's a real move towards doing more surgeries awake, uh, you know, to sort of preserve function, um, which I do a lot of. Um, but I'm actually hoping that the surgery becomes less important. Uh, and that we, you know, that the targeted agents, the, you know, the, 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 the adjuvant therapies that we're starting to develop might knock off a lot of the tumour without me having to go in there and suck it out. I, I, it's okay. I don't mind being made obsolete. A surgeon who wants to do less surgery. You, you, well, that's... I just want the patients to do better because none of, very little of the surgery that I do is curative. Yep. Um, and where are they going with children's um, brain cancers? Is there um, a better prognosis for some of those kids? Uh, it, I mean, it's quite it's quite mixed. Um, for things like a, a medulloblastoma and ependymoma, um, which are, are common childhood cancers, yes. The one that gets a lot of press in the news, um, DIPG, I think, you know, not, not a lot of change at this point. Uh, what but does that stand for, um, Kate? Diffused intrinsic pontine glioma. Right, okay. Um, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a bit more time before yeah. we make a change to that. But, I mean, children's brain cancer has an enormous amount of funding, so hopefully that will really make a difference. Professor Kate Drummond, now, th- I know you wanted to hang around to listen to our next guest, so we're going to keep you on the line. Thank you so much. Like all our guests, like we say to all our guests, we could speak to you like for 
days about the kind of stuff you do and good on you for for a lot of the, the, the stuff that you're doing. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Professor Sharon Lewin, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Dr Mal. And we've been trying to get you for a couple of months as well. You've been very, very busy because there's been a bit of a viral thing happening in Melbourne. <laughs> and I like a bit of a viral thing, actually. Yeah. But this one's a little this one's a little bit too intense. I was going to say. Um, hey, uh, where are we up to in uh, understanding, our understanding of COVID, you know, the whole thing, you know, the transmission, the, the, the genes, everything? Give us a snapshot. Okay, uh, in in uh, thirty seconds. Uh, yeah, thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'll start by saying we've learnt a hell of a lot, yeah. uh, given totally new virus, only you know aware of it since late December, and knowing it's a coronavirus in January. What are the big things? Um, well, we know it's highly infectious. Yeah. First of all, it can be spread from people that have symptoms and don't have symptoms, and that's really been the big challenge here. Probably about 20% of people have absolutely no symptoms and are yet just as infectious. We know that in most people it's a mild disease unless you're old or have comorbidities. But there's more to it than just getting severe pneumonia, and that's pretty new, that even if you have mild disease and you're young, it looks like about 10 to 20% of people have prolonged symptoms, Mm -hmm. and we don't know how long that's going to last for. So, um, you know, this has been a what, – what else do we, we – know, we, know, we know that um, the uh, immune system is absolutely key to the disease so that most – if you look at when people get sick, their first week, they usually have mild symptoms. That's usually when the virus is replicating and you can detect it in the nose, in the lung, in the bowel, actually even sometimes in blood. But in this, and most people then clear the disease and that's fine. People that get sicker get sicker in their second and third weeks of infection, and that's related to a dysregulated immune response. And therefore, the treatments you use early and that you use late are very different. Finally, we only have one treatment that works so far, and that's dexamethasone, very simple treatment. Steroid, you would have heard about it. People use it for asthma, for for arthritis, for skin diseases. It's a very blunt instrument. It basically dampens the entire immune system but works really well if you give it at the right time so in people that are on oxygen or on ventilated steroids very cheap Mm. 10 days of steroids reduce your risk of dying by 20 to 30 percent we haven't done as well on developing good antiviral drugs we have one it's pretty average it doesn't affect mortality it just reduces time to recovery so we've got a long way to go on treatments and then there's a ton of work on vaccines. Um, what we're ra- waiting for are the big phase three studies, meaning studies in 30,000, 40,000 people that tell us if the vaccine's safe and if it prevents from disease. And the first big study, um, the one done in the US, a company called Moderna has just been fully enrolled, which is pretty exciting. So we'll have results from that by the end of the year. So a spectacular amount of work. I mean, you know, there's something like 50 thousand papers have been published 
in um, the first 10 months of COVID. So I used to pride myself of being up to date in the literature. <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely, completely impossible. You know All you've got to, you just got to keep talking to lots and lots of people to know what's really coming out. What amazes me about that is that journals actually get them reviewed and published within, you know, six months, because often it can take a year or two just to get a paper into a journal. They review it, you know, the reviewers, you know, sit on it for a couple of months gets back and changes. Yeah. So to get those papers published in a year is, is quite extraordinary too. Well, there's been this really interesting um, uh, commitment to making new information available as quick as possible and it's done through something called preprint. So as mm. soon as you submit your paper, it's available to everyone to see even though it hasn't been peer-reviewed. It's actually a really important point because peer review means your experts look at it and the papers, you know, big flaws in the paper get picked up at that point. It does get refined. It does get better. And often papers change a lot. Mm. So you've got to distinguish between these preprints, which is a good thing, but what's actually published. But actually, I'm talking about 50,000 published. So there's even more that um, are in preprint. And a lot of the journals, too, well, I know the New England Journal uh, publishes online, obviously, and their COVID papers are all free. So, yeah. Which yeah, in fact, in fact yeah. all of the all yeah. of the big journals have done that. Everything's been free. Every big journal, Nature Science, New England Lancet, it's all free. It's really mm. fantastic. Epi, I know you had a stack of questions to ask, Sharon. Uh, uh, look, um, Sharon. <laughs> Hi, Epi Penn. Good morning, Professor Lewin. How are you? <laughs> Very well. We got you back, and like Kate, you two haven't been travelling as much as you normally. Do. <laughs> <laughs> Not far from your lounge room. Five um, kilometres. <laughs> or 25 recently. Or 25, yeah. Not yeah. that that makes much of a difference to my life somehow. Mm. <laughs> no. Um, something that was in the New York Times I was reading was a thing called the Great Barrington Declaration. Do you know about that? No, I don't. Tell me. Big paper, a big group published epidemiologists and ID physicians. It's there around the world, but focused in the US, where they want to talk about focused protection. And they're really grappling with the issues about lockdowns. And as Kate would know, people not presenting for testing for brain cancers and heart disease and psychiatric illnesses and trying to put this whole package together with lockdown and not wrecking the economy and mental health and other health issues. How, what, what, you know, where do you think we're going to go when with all of this? So whatever this focus protection is, I think it's trying to work with society to keep the virus at bay as much as possible but to live with some outbreaks while we all wait tentatively for this vaccine. Yeah, well, I think when you talk about um, population-based strategies for COVID, you've got to, the situation in Australia or Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea, New Zealand, places that are really wanting to try and get to this sort of COVID normal and very low numbers is very different to when you look at the US and Europe and South America and Russia and India with these massive outbreaks. So let's just talk about those first because you've already got the cats out of the bag, you've got hunt, you've got millions of infections um, you and lockdown isn't an option because the only thing that can cope with anything that size, and remember the scale that you're talking about in Europe and the US is 
a hundred times even what China was dealing with. The only way you can really turn that around dramatically is with a lockdown, which isn't going to be feasible right now in those in those parts of the world. So therefore, what do you do? You try and um, flatten the curve, which actually means reduce your impact on hospitals. That's what that's what that original term meant. Not the way we talk about flatten the curve, meaning getting rid of rid of infections. And um, so by f- to, to reduce your admission to hospital, you want to protect the most vulnerable. And so a lot of people are talking about that most of your a- active, most of your efforts should go on making sure that the elderly are not exposed and protecting protecting the most vulnerable. Um, and uh, and and then maybe if in some parts of the world you can think about partial lockdown. So you'll lock down just one city or maybe even one neighbourhood. So that's really only relevant to people that are trying, just countries that are trying to get down to basically minimal community transmission. So, for example, Beijing and parts of China have done that very well, meaning that they once they get any COVID, they lock down that particular region. They managed to do it in Beijing. They've done it in in cities outside of in in smaller cities, and it's kind of what we've done in Melbourne. But what we're doing in Melbourne is not comparable to the sorts of things that people are thinking about in Europe and the US. Because, in first of all, Victoria, we had... Oh, I think we've... Uh, we've, lost we've just lost you, Sharon. Oh. oh no, you? Now we've got you back again. Yeah, in Victoria, you've got... We, we had no choice because we had to get back to the levels of community transmission that the rest of the country had. Otherwise, we'd never be able to join to the rest of the country. And that was why we went for this second lockdown, which nowhere else in the world is trying to do. So that's sort of my, when interpreting these these issues around limited lockdowns, protecting your elderly, um, you've got to look at what sort of, what you're trying to achieve. And what we're trying to achieve in Melbourne is really different to what countries in Europe and the US are doing currently. Um, Knowing that you were coming on the show, some mates um, texted me some questions. So <laughs> you can phone a friend, you can pass. You can, no, sure. No. Um, the, what, the first question was about blood groups and infection with the COVID virus. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it look, there's not many infectious diseases that are linked to blood groups because blood groups are um, different proteins on your red blood yeah. cells. And infections are very linked to your white blood cells. So there's a ton of stuff around infectious diseases and different white blood cells that each of us have, but not much about red blood cells. But it was this interesting observation initially made, in fact, in Italy and Spain that people with blood group O, I hope I've got this right, um, had less severe disease. They were more less likely to be in intensive care with covid and then further work showed that actually if you have blood group O, you're less likely to be infected with COVID. But it's not huge. I think it's about a sort of a, a reduced risk by about 20%, something like that. So if you have blood group A, you're more susceptible. If you have blood group O, you're less susceptible. And B and AB, you're in between. Don't really understand why. One theory is that... Um, when you have blood group O, um, you make an, a your body makes a response to um, certain proteins on red cells, which are, which people have um, on red cells, and that protects from the virus entering into your target cell. 
So yes, there is there is a relate there is a clear relationship, but it's pretty modest. Well, that's interesting because I scoffed at them. I said it can't be. It's all the white cells, not the red cells. So. Score zero yep. for Rob, yep. one for Rob's mates. Um, and the efficacy of the flu vaccine. Now, I'll tell you why I'm asking this, because my mate said the flu vaccine is only about 40% effective in terms of uh, preventing the flu. And I said, don't be ridiculous. It's much higher than that. Um, who's right? Well, you're both kind of right. Oh, okay. Because basically the flu vaccine, the efficacy varies every year uh, between about 30 to 70%. And um, the, the reason why it varies is that every year we change the flu vaccine right. based on what was circulating in the Northern Hemisphere before it predicting what's going to come to the Southern Hemisphere and vice versa versus what we have in the Southern Hemisphere then dictates what the Northern Hemisphere is going to do. In fact, we have a centre at the Doherty Institute called the WHO Collaborating Centre for Reference and Research in Influenza, or we call it the Who Flu Centre for short. Um, and the Who Flu Centre has actually been in Melbourne since the 1950s. It's the only flu, WHO flu centre in the Southern Hemisphere hmm. and it tracks flu strains in the Southern Hemisphere and that informs the vaccine for the Northern Hemisphere and vice versa. And sometimes you get it right and you make a good prediction about what what strains we will see and sometimes you may underestimate a strain that takes off and that's why the efficacy varies so for example last year we didn't have a good prediction of the type of strains that ultimately were circulating and the vaccine efficacy was lowish and I, I can't I think it was around 40 percent while some years you get a good prediction and it can be as high as 70 to 80 percent still very worthwhile getting it because even just that small efficacy is beneficial, especially if you're at risk of severe influenza. Yeah, yeah. So I think the basis of um, his question and my question is, would a COVID vaccine have a similar efficacy or would it be higher because it doesn't change that much as the flu, as the flu changes? Well, um, first of all, the, the, you're right, COVID doesn't vary as much as flu. So it doesn't vary that much. Flu varies a lot. The goal of the COVID vaccine is you're not going to have one every year. We will design. The the prediction is that you'll only need one shot. It depends on how long the immunity lasts. You won't need to keep chasing new strains of COVID because we're not seeing that. Now, for the um, so it's very different. It's a bit. It's 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 very very different. It's a bit like how we do Hep B and measles and yeah. vaccines, etc. The COVID vaccine, though, um, it protects you. There's two ways that the vaccine can protect you. It can protect you from getting infected, meaning that it can protect your nose ever getting infected with the virus, or it can protect you from getting disease, meaning that you're that you that you don't get infection in your lungs. And it's actually quite hard to protect against infection. And most of the vaccines that we've seen, at least in animal models, protect against disease. Mm-hmm. One of them is not too bad against infection. That's the Moderna vaccine. And the FDA have, um, have set a bar, and the WHO have set a bar that a vaccine that reduces disease by like 50% would be enough to license it. Mm, sounds great. Um, so, and Sharon, what... What's happened to Dr. Fauci? I feel that the American Infectious Diseases Group hasn't really rallied around him to support him in some of his his sayings and how he steers Trump in trying to prevent and protect people in America. Do you, do you know what's going on there? Um, 
Yeah, I do. Absolutely not. The every, the, the whole of um, his his colleagues, uh, I think, big parts of the American public are right behind him. You know, he's like a superhero in the infectious diseases world. In my world, he's been a superhero for the last forty years because um, he's an HIV. You know, his background's in HIV, and uh, he's done extraordinary things in HIV. And then in Ebola and Zika and now COVID. Oh no, the the um the his infectious disease world are right behind him. Um, I think you know it's just a crazy situation that you've got a president that can denounce someone that eminent. It's beyond ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that people aren't behind him. It's sort of funny. Actually, I was involved in a in a sort of group letter to him showing support about four months ago when it was nothing like it is now. Um, yeah, I don't know. In a, if it, it happened in Australia, would people come out more vocally maybe? I don't, it's, you, it's interesting that you say that, but no, 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 no. People adore him. He's like an yeah. absolute god in, in my world. He's, he's got yeah. a very avuncular face, doesn't he? He's kind of like the uncle you always want to have. He's just so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's unbelievable. You know, he's 80 years old. He looks pretty good for 80. He's 80. A, he looks great. He used to run. I know he was a, he's a big yeah. runner. I think he's stopped running in the last year. But he's also completely on top of every aspect of the science. Hmm. And um, any, I've, you know, any, he still, he gives lots of talks and, in fact, gave um, a sort of a coronavirus 101 at a meeting I attended in July. And it was absolutely fabulously brilliant, succinct, clear. Yeah, he's, he's really incredible. Um, in the time remaining, Sharon, you talked a bit about the Moderna uh, vaccine and there's, there are lots of other candidates as well that are actually in phase three. Moderna's sort of reached completion in terms of recruitment. I know you must get asked this, what, 100 times a day? When do you think we're going to see a vaccine? Um, the estimate is that if things go well, um, and, and that's, a, you know, it's a long shot. If many, it goes completely well, it's completely safe. It reduces disease by 50% or more, um, and they're the results of that first phase three study. The estimates are that we will hear this in um, the results late, not in time for the election. It will be late 2020 or early 2021. And then you need to manufacture the virus at scale and then deliver it. And the, the, the Moderna vaccine is an interesting one because it uses a totally new technology that there's never been a vaccine license like this one. It uses something called, it's a, it, uses, it makes RNA, it makes a genetic code of the virus, not a protein of the virus. It's very effective, um, and but it's not, and very few countries can make it at scale. So, for example, in Australia, we don't have the capabilities to make an RNA vaccine. So if Moderna is the front runner, we can only get that vaccine through purchasing it. And there's different ways that you can yeah. purchase it. So how quickly you deliver it, you know, at earliest we might see a vaccine in the field by middle of next year. Okay. Well, that's kind of what I've been hearing, so that, is that's reassuring and china and russia are sort of more advanced but their regulatory requirements for those vaccines are a bit different there's been I mean, some really good memes on instagram about the um about the sputnik vaccine Sharon, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us look again we could spend hours talking to you hi this is panel beta thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radiotherapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health medicine and well-being 
broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.